0: Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. We're back in our, our series in Luke. Uh, so of, as you read through uh, scriptures, you, you find that there are only two... What's up, There's only two of Jesus' miracles that are mentioned in all four Gospels. Only two that are mentioned in all four, Um, which means, you know, each of the inspired writers of the Gospels, uh, they each had slightly different approaches to how they would lay out uh, the historical life and times of Jesus. And and though they all kind of highlighted different details, they all agreed uh, that out of all the things that Jesus did, these were his two signature calling cards— And, of course, one is the resurrection, which that's a given, right? The the great miracle, uh, the resurrection, which means out of all of Jesus' other miracles, there is only one, only one that all gospel writers said, for us to understand who Jesus is, we've got to see this. We must understand this. Well, this morning, we come to that one miracle that is in all four gospels. It is uh, the feeding of the 5,000, as it's been called Uh, But before we read it, uh, really just two helpful reminders to kind of help get all of our minds wrapped around what we're about to read, give us a grid to see this. Um, First, just really the concept of miracles. And and this is is so important to to get this. Um, We live in an increasingly skeptical world that is jaded and really just kind of turned off to the supernatural, right? Uh, Which means... Some people today read this and they read all about these miracles in the Bible. You know, Jonah being swallowed by the fish and, you know, the flood and all the animals on the ark and all the things that Jesus did walking on water. Like we read all those things and they say, what a bunch of baloney. What matters, what really matters and what the only thing that ever will matter is what's right here and right now, what we can experience with our senses, that what's real to us. And so this, you know, some non-believing scholars try to rationalize the miraculous things in the Bible and say, especially like with this, the the real miracle here is the miracle of generosity. You know, that, you know, people were so moved by one person giving their little lunch that everybody started opening their bags, and before you know it, 5,000 people plus were, were fed. It's the miracle of generosity, and the humanistic pastors will say, eat, pray, love, go humans, right? good. All right, so to reject the supernatural is to reject God, uh, because God is, by his very definition, supernatural. And so our world defines a miracle as something that is contrary to nature, right? It is, uh, it's a suspension of a natural law. But as we read the Bible, we find that the Bible as a whole gives us a, a different understanding of what a, quote, miracle is, Uh, In the 4th century, Augustine said, miracles are not contrary to nature. Uh, Miracles are only contrary to what we know about nature. Uh, Tim Keller said that miracles are not suspensions of natural law, but they're, for brief instances, God restoring the world to its pre-fall form. There's something in miracles that we see that maybe this is how life was always supposed to be. And so that's why, if you notice, none of Jesus' miracles in the Gospels are just raw demonstrations of his power, right? Like, like he's not the Hulk flexing or Spider-Man shooting at his web just because he can. Um, No, all of his displays of power, like every single one, are him restoring and ordering the chaos. You know, he made the blind see. He made the lame walk. In this passage, we're going to see him feed the hungry. Because all of that gives us a glimpse into the world that Jesus came to restore, right? A world in which the blind see, in which there are no more lame, where there will be no more cancer, no more pain. Um, And as we see in this miracle, a world in which all who are hungry are completely satisfied. So miracles are really a glimpse of reality. They're a glimpse of sanity uh, to us who live in a fallen world gone mad okay all right so then second talk about miracles then second we need to remember that this actually happened like, like this literally happened like I, it was blowing my mind just thinking about this week like if okay if, if somebody came up to me and said I have to host a party for 5,000 people I can't do that can can y'all have you any has anybody done that um I was thinking about Dolly Parton, Dixie Stampede. You know, they feed, like, what, like 1,000 people in, like, 20 minutes or something? And that's pretty miraculous, right? Um, we need to know that this is a historically true miracle. And you probably noticed the asterisk behind the, the sermon title. That's not a typo. I know we've, we've all noted this before, but gospel writers, as we read it, say that it was 5,000 men. And other gospel writers say not including women and children. And so this was written in a deeply patriarchal society in which the numbers were counted by heads of households. So they only counted men. And so most scholars agree that the title, the feeding of the 5,000, is a bit misleading, possibly. Because if you were to include the women and the children who were no doubt there that day, instead of 5,000, the crowd was possibly more like 15,000 or 20,000 making this by far the most public of Jesus' miracles. And, and here's why this is important. is because the earliest of the Gospels began circulating around 30 to 40 years after this event. And, and look, I know some people say, look, 30, 30 years is a long time. But um, as we get older, and some of y'all know this, that actually as you get older, you see 30 years, that ain't that much. <laughs> That's not that long at all. Um, I, I th- I've, I've been playing guitar for almost 30 years. And I still, like, vividly remember the feel, the smell, the the, the sound of, of my first rinky-dink pawn, star, uh, pawn shop guitar. Um, which means there would have been literally thousands of eyewitnesses still around who would still remember the taste of that meal, you know? Um, and, and all it would have taken was just, one of those thousands of people to come forward and to say, "Look, that—that's just not how it happened." I know y'all want to think this, but that just is not what happened. You know, they could say, or, or they would say, "It was the miracle of generosity," <laughs> or, or Karen Burris. She was there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Karen catered the whole thing. She was totally there. But it never happened because Westminster—you don't go public with something unless it actually happened. You know, just ask Elizabeth Holmes, right? You know, this literally happened, and so with that grid, let's dive in and let's see what God uh, is teaching us this morning. So this is God's Word, um, Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all that they had done, and Jesus took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them. And Jesus spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Well, now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came to Jesus and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and to get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But Jesus said to them, You give them something to eat. His disciples said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. There were about 5,000 men. And Jesus said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And, he, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. This is God's word. And if you remember from two weeks ago, Jesus had sent, Jesus had sent out his disciples uh, to teach the good news of the kingdom of God. And they'd gone out, and so now by the time we get to this passage, uh, they had just finished up their internship. So they're done with that, that going out. And no doubt, they're, they're coming in, they're tired All they want to do is just can we just go be with Jesus and and just tell Jesus about how it went. Well, Matthew mentions that you know Jesus wanted to hear how it went, so Matthew mentions that they got into a boat and they went across the lake to a desolate place. uh, What we find is in the in the region of Bethsaida, but there was just one problem. As we've known, Jesus has been in Galilee all this time. He's doing miracles. He's teaching. His popularity is growing like crazy. And so people find out that Jesus and his disciples are there. And so as they take the boat across the lake, people on land are like, Jesus is here. It's almost like the midnight ride of Paul Revere. They all, they begin running around the lake so that they can meet Jesus when he gets to the other side. And each little town, they they come through, Jesus is here, Jesus is here. And so by the time Jesus and the disciples pull up on the shore, there's already a huge crowd of people waiting on him, waiting for him. And Mark's account notes that though Jesus was really tired, that he looked out on this crowd of people and he saw them as sheep without a a shepherd. And it broke his heart. And so Jesus, in compassion, he welcomed them in and he began feeding them spiritually, uh, which leads us to the first thing that God wants us to see this morning. And and Josh mentioned it in our our prayer this morning. Um, Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd your soul craves. You know, in the 1800s, some Roman catacombs were unearthed. Um, And what they found was some really, really interesting things because as they unearthed them, they realized that these were the tombs of some of the earliest Christians way back when. And so what they found was really interesting because, you know, even today you can drive past a cemetery and you know, you can kind of tell that if this is a Roman Catholic cemetery or if this is a Protestant cemetery, because Roman Catholic cemeteries, are, at least in, historically, have been marked by, you know, cro- uh, crosses, crucifixes, um, possibly older ones as, you know, references to purgatory. Uh, prayers for the dead are found on the tombstones. Um, Protestant cemeteries, you know, are often are marked by maybe more scripture references that you'll find on the tombstones um, you know, expressions of joy in the reality that your loved one is now in the presence of their Savior. Very hope-filled type uh, language there. Well, like that, the symbols and the words that they found in the earliest church catacombs were a window into the early church. And by the way, they, what they found was completely different from what we use today. So in the catacombs, the most common symbols that the earliest church used were Um, the good shepherd so it's this picture of a shepherd uh, the fish and then the vine and and coincidentally those three symbols all but disappeared after the fourth century in the church but prior to the fourth century in the mind of the earliest Christians those were the most vivid expressions like if you want to know what the early church thought of Jesus shepherd he's the vine fish Um, and so here we see it so beautifully Uh, that Jesus doesn't turn any of his people away. As the good shepherd, he welcomes his people. And there's there's an allusion here to Ezekiel 34, you know, where God comes down pretty hard on the false shepherds of Israel. Uh, You know, the, the leaders, the shepherds were supposed to protect the people. They were supposed to look out for the people. Those were the ones who were supposed to step in with you when you were at your worst. Like, those were the people who were supposed to, to go out and feed and heal and restore and, like, go out and rescue the lost and wandering sheep. But God said, look, instead of feeding the sheep, these false shepherds, I mean, really, they'd just been fleecing the sheep. You know, they'd been living for, for their platform and, 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 and their agenda. So the people had no love, they had no care, they had no leadership. They, they had no shepherd who would leave the 99 and go and get them and bring them back home. And so Jesus looked out at, at this huge crowd who had no shepherd, and though he was worn out, he began to feed them spiritually because that's what shepherds do. Well, we're going to come back to the other way we see Jesus as the shepherd here because not only does he feed them spiritually, but he's, you know, we're about to see that he also feeds them physically. Uh, but in the meantime, think about this. If Jesus is the shepherd... What does that say about us? Well, it means that we're not. (laughs) We're not the shepherd, right? Second point, we're not. Uh, Jesus preached all day, and it wasn't long before uh, some of the disciples started getting concerned, like we you know, sheep get concerned about things, right? And and so here they were in the middle of nowhere. There's no food. There's no restaurant. uh, Nothing near. What was Jesus going to do? And so the disciples thought about it. They get together, and they come up with this really logical plan. And they say, Jesus, we've been thinking about it. Jesus, why don't, why don't we tell everybody to just go get dinner on their own? Because uh, let's just let them feed themselves. But Jesus looked at his disciples, and he said in verse 13, no, you give them something to eat. It's like you notice the need, you, you meet the need. And talk about being able to hear a pin drop. Yeah, who, I mean, who knows, maybe one of the disciples said jokingly, that's funny, Jesus, because it sounded like you wanted us to feed them. Uh, I mean, think about, and we mentioned this, think about, you know, people will spend weeks, right? Definitely days, but weeks uh, planning and then gathering the food for a wedding reception. And some of the largest weddings, you know, they have, what, a couple hundred guests. I mean, can you imagine several thousand and in John, Philip, the disciple Philip answered, and you can almost hear the sarc- sarcasm in his voice. He said, Jesus, you, you do realize it would take like eight months' wages uh, for us to feed this kind of a crowd. Remember, like, we don't have a place to lay our heads. You, you know we don't have that kind of money. Jesus, what you're asking us to do, well, well it's impossible. I mean, we cannot do it. And yet Westminster, exactly, right, I think that's the point. Could it be that all of this language in this passage is meant to remind us of another time where God's people were in, was in a desolate place? Impossibly so. And the only way that they lived was, was God providing bread for them, manna, in the wilderness. And yet here we have Jesus again in the middle of nowhere. Jesus is literally in a desolate place, and the only way the people will ever be fed is if he, the shepherd, provides bread, and it's striking that in Deuteronomy, Moses, when he's describing this, Moses said that God fed the manna in the wilderness. Here's the reason: to humble them and to test them. And yet, in John's account of this passage, Jesus, it says, John records that Jesus asked that question to his disciples, kind of like, "Why don't you feed them? Y'all, y'all can do it." That he did that to, to test his disciples. I think we've mentioned this before, but in the Hebrew language, uh, to test doesn't mean like, you know, to pass or fail something, you know, to be examined and you pass or fail. No, but in the Hebrew, to test means to train to trust. You know, God tests his people by putting them in situations that train them, that train us to trust him. So ha- have you ever been put in a situation that trains you to trust God. That maybe apart from that situation, you wouldn't even feel your need to trust God. And so God puts us in situations to train to trust. So John Calvin said, For men have no taste for God's power, till they are convinced of their need of it. And they immediately forget its value, unless they are conditionally reminded by awareness of their own weakness. That's how we're reminded of God's power. And so Jesus was bringing his disciples to the point of desperation by, by making them oh so aware of just how limited their resources were. I mean, they ain't got it. And how much they too needed a shepherd to provide for them. And by the way, as a believer, I mean, this is your story too. Okay, like, don't, don't believe the lie that, like, it's a happy, happy, happy life. Like, like this is your story too as a believer. Our, our only joy comes from Jesus because Jesus takes you into the wilderness. He takes us into the desolate places in our lives where we can't hide behind our resources. And we can't hide behind our family name. And just a quick aside, um, you know, to those of you who are like second, third, fourth generation Greenwood, and you have the sweet, sweet blessing, and it really is a blessing You've got the sweet blessing of built-in layers of insulation and, and insurance with, you know, relationships and family connections and all the time that you've been here. But at the same time, know, know that, that if that's you, then the, the illusion that you've got this and that you, you, you can handle it is really hard to dispel, okay? And so it's uncomfortable when these things start getting stripped away and you realize that, you, you know what, my family name my connections, like none of this is is enough to stand before God. And so it's a beautiful thing. One of the greatest things God can do for us is to strip away any false notions that, that we're the ones on the throne, that we're the ones who are in charge, and to remind us that in ourselves we stand completely powerless, dependent on the one with all the power. And so in doing so, I know in those moments we feel like we are unraveling But but it's in those moments Jesus is constantly training us to go to the one who we can trust, to place our ultimate trust in him. Well, as we see in other gospel accounts, all this time the disciples, they haven't given up. They're, They're combing the crowds trying to find some food. And John tells us that Andrew, the disciple Andrew, found a little boy, remember? And this little boy had a little snack. It was five barley loaves and two Fish. I mean, it, it's, it's nothing. I, I love that, you know, in this time, barley loaves, that's, that was usually the bread of the poor. You know, that's about all the poor people could afford. And so we've got this little poor little boy with his little snack. And, and they bring it to Jesus, and it's, it's nothing. But it's all, it's all they have. And, and so the question is, like, how not up to the challenge were the disciples in saving the day? And how not up to the challenge are we? about five loaves, not up to the challenge. I mean, it's a joke, right? And yet, notice Jesus, oh, you see his grace here. Notice what Jesus said. It's just five loaves, barley loaves at that. We ain't talking about nice bread. Jesus says, that's perfect. Bring them to me. And I love what Eugene Peterson said. He said, Jesus said, follow me. And he ended up with a lot of losers, <laughs> Uh, And these losers ended up, through no virtue or talent of their own, becoming saints. Jesus wasn't after the best, but the worst. Y'all, isn't isn't that life as a follower? I mean, that's the life of a follower. So Jesus is reminding us that it's not really our job to be adequate for the task, but but the plot twist that it, it is by bringing our inadequacies to him, that we become adequate in him. So Paul put it this way, God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is always sufficient, for his power is made perfect in our our weakness. So Jesus says, look, bring your five loaves, bring your two fish, and then he tells his disciples to to, seat the crowd. And so Jesus takes the the five loaves and the two fish, he gave thanks, and he probably said something akin to the ancient Jewish uh, table benediction, which is, this is the King James rendering of it. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Which given thanks for the food. And then Jesus broke the loaves. And at that point, the miracle happened, Right? Uh, Have y'all probably seen uh, the magicians do their little foam ball tricks? You know, they start off with like one ball, and the next thing you know it's two, and then it's three, and then all of a sudden they're like pulling these foam things. They're they're just all over the place, right? Well, that's what happened here. The Greek verb says that Jesus broke the bread. And the the verb for broke is in a tense that it's, it's, it's implying that Jesus broke, and he just kept on breaking. He just kept on breaking bread. And so Jesus was making new matter, which skeptics say that, you know, new matter cannot be created nor destroyed, right? Um, And what's wonderful here is Jesus isn't stingy with his miracle. He's not stingy. Like, he doesn't give you, like, just enough to get home. It's like, you know, you're like your grandparents or your parents when, like, you're going off to college and you need, like, $25 to get there and they give you $25, right? Right. like, Jesus isn't stingy. Like, he made so much that all ate and all were satisfied, and then they had 12 baskets left over. So there were leftovers. All right. Well, what does all this mean? Uh, well, a couple of things that this means for us as we close. Um, first, if, if Jesus is the shepherd and we're not the shepherd, uh, then that means that we need him. We need a shepherd, Right? The truth is that we have a lot in common with this crowd and with the disciples here. And now we may not be physically hungry right now, but apart from Jesus, like we all know what it's like to be a sheep without a shepherd. Like all of us know that deep, unsettling restlessness that's in us when we are a sheep without a shepherd. You know, in a world that strives for independence, uh, Jesus Jesus sees that as sheep without a shepherd. (laughs) Um, because we weren't created to be independent. Uh, We're created to be God-dependent. We all long to be truly known, don't we? We want people to know us as deep as we go and and to love us still, to be truly known, fully loved. This week, y'all probably saw that um, Country Music World lost one of its matriarchs, right? Naomi Judd uh, passed this week. And according to her daughter Ashley, her mother thought that she was not enough, she was not loved, she was not worthy, and it drove her to suicide. Uh, it, it's heartbreaking because in reality, that's how people—that's how sheep without a shepherd feel. You're not enough. You're not worthy. You're not loved. Um, because we we all long to know that someone cares, don't we? You know. Um, You know, every post on Facebook is like, does somebody care enough to like it? Um, We wish someone loved us enough to drop everything. Don't you wish someone loved you enough to drop everything and like you are (laughs) priority? To drop everything to leave the ninety nine and come and get you and bring you back home. You know, we we receive the diagnosis right, and 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 maybe we feel alone in that moment, and we're afraid. Wondering what's gonna happen. Like, I think we all at various times, like, we know what it's like to be a sheep without a shepherd. And yet, the gospel message is that just like these people in this miracle, the gospel is that Jesus too looked at you and he had compassion on you and he welcomed you in and his heart so went out to you that not only did he leave the 99 to come and get you, but like he left heaven to come and to seek you and find you and rescue you and to bring you back home to the father so that you could so that come what may in your life you would be safe and sound in the care of your good father and your good shepherd so fear not little flock you know on the night Jesus was betrayed and he was he was handed over to be crucified The Gospels tell us that he had uh, another meal. This was his last meal, the Last Supper, right? And if you remember, it was at this meal he also took bread, and he also gave thanks, and he also broke it, just like he did in this uh, this situation. And he said, as he broke it, he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Take hold of it and eat it uh, in remembrance of me. Remember what I've done for you. You know, in order to to eat bread, um, you know, for bread to be inside of you, like in your stomach, uh, you have to, well, you have to tear it, right? It has to be torn into pieces. And in the upper room, Jesus was telling us that this picture, that this bread was a picture of him. And on the cross, and all the things that he went through, Jesus was torn. And so that by his stripes, we could be healed. And so that in him, you could be wholly satisfied. That you could know that there is someone who loves you truly. Who knows you deep down. The good shepherd who satisfies. And so this is an invitation to to come and find rest in his pasture. Come and have a shepherd. Jesus is there for you. But then, um, second... For those of you who have Jesus as your good shepherd, you already, you already know this, you're living that reality. He is your good shepherd. Second, uh, Jesus also reminds us of our humble mission, <laughs> very humble mission. Phil Rikin tells the story of Robert Morrison, who uh, in 1805, the London Missionary Society uh, called him to go to China to be a missionary, a trailblazing missionary in China. The problem was at the time in Britain, uh, the only boats or ships going to China belonged to the, the East India Trading Company, and they refused to transport missionaries. They're like, we, we ain't getting involved in all this. Um, and so Robert Morrison went to the United States, came to America, hoping that he could find a ship in America that would take him to China. Well, sure enough, he found a boat uh, whose captain said, look, we'll take you to China, no problem. But the captain heard about his missionary plans, and the captain of the boat skeptically said, look, come here, Robert, do you you really think that you are going to make an impression at all on China? Like all the the idolatry of China, do you think you're going to do anything? I love what Robert Morrison said. He quickly replied. He said, no, sir, I don't, (laughs) but I expect God will. That's it, right? Um, That's it. You know, we have very little to bring to the table, <laughs> but, but God does. And yet, look here, this miracle shows us that we do get a part to play in what Jesus is doing. Not us, but what Jesus is doing on this earth. So, so yes, Jesus was the one who broke the bread. And Jesus did the miracle. But then, did you notice that he, he gave it to his disciples to then distribute, to take to the people? I mean, look, the hard part was done. I mean, he made the food. Like, Jesus could have easily just, just waited, it, you know, served it up, but he calls his people to. And so it's not my ministry, and it's not your ministry. It's God's. Jesus is the one who feeds the people. We just serve Jesus. We just give them Jesus. And so there are some things that we can do as we close out. Um, but... By the way, Annie and I went to a, a primitive Baptist ordination yesterday, and it was like an hour-and-a-half service, hour-and-a-half lunch, and then like a three-hour service, boom, 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 boom. And uh, all the preachers kept saying, and in conclusion, and then they would preach like 40 more minutes, you know. Um, I have like two sentences, so I mean that. Um, there, there is some things that we can do in response to, to this. One is uh, we can live life beneath God's grace. You know, just live life beneath God's grace, taking our weaknesses to Jesus, and then watching him do immeasurably more what we could ask or imagine, grace upon grace upon grace, and living that out in our lives. And then, as Phil Riken said, in response to receiving that grace of our good shepherd, we can recognize people's needs, you know, we can see people's needs, and then we can give what we have to Jesus And then we can give away what Jesus graciously provides. So that is the humble mission that our good shepherd gives. Amen? Amen. Well, let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we thank you for your good, good word that tells us about our good, good shepherd. uh, That in Jesus, uh, we have someone who doesn't leave us, doesn't forsake us. Lord, even at our worst, uh, comes and feeds us, and sustains us. Us, Lord, may you give us eyes to see that. Lord, to live our lives in light of that. And and for those of us who know that, Lord, may you, through your grace, compel us to go out um, and to give others Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you shepherd us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.